Welcome to the eighth episode of Libnani with Eli. My guest on today's show is a Lebanese Australian journalist and filmmaker who directed the award-winning documentary Enough, Lebanon's Darkest Hour. Featuring exclusive interviews and never-before-seen footage, she exposes the corruption that infests the country. After holding private screenings around the world, she will be launching a global watch party of her film on April 9, which will also premiere in Lebanon. Here to tell us all about it, I am honoured to welcome to my show a courageous woman on a mission to save Lebanon, Daisy Gideon. Daisy, welcome to the show. Wow, what an introduction. But I really actually am on a mission to save Lebanon. When you said that, it was like, yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's an honour to have you on this show. My absolute honour and pleasure too, because... You know, there's no point sitting at home and talking to yourself about this. We've got to share the story and we've got to get it out there. That's the job of us journalists Absolutely. is to release it and reveal it and amplify it to the broadest audience we can. Speaking of sharing, you created this documentary film, which is, I would say, quite a sad sequel to your first film, Lebanon Imprisoned Splendor, which was released in 1996. What was the motivation behind this new film? Look, I always believed that after the first film, I would make a second film, I would make a sequel, but I knew I had to wait for things to evolve because these films take time to make. Like the first film, it took three and a half years to make it. This one took five years. So things have to change and evolve. Life happened. It took 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) come back to it but when I got the idea in 2016 it wasn't sort of oh now's the time let's go it was I'm in the middle of a messy divorce settlement here I got three young kids I got to build my business I'm trying to keep myself afloat and then this whisper started in my ear it's time, it's time. I'm going, it's time. No, it's not time. <laughs> I don't have time. Where to God, it was like this whisper that got louder and louder and louder that by the end of October, I think 2016, it was this screaming in my head and I said, okay, I get it. Okay, like, okay, I'll go, I'll start. And so I had to literally start and what I did was start researching and finding out what had happened I knew I've been going to Lebanon every two years I go to Lebanon take my kids love it I love going there and I've seen the evolution and growth from 1996 to 2016 it's 20 years so I said okay it's time but I need to know what the story was so I started researching and I honestly thought I was going to Lebanon when we pulled together a little crew in Beirut it wasn't going to be a big thing because I thought Let me try and do this myself and then get a little bit of support funding from the government, different grants and things. But let me go and see what the story is. And so we went in 2017 and I had a plan and I thought corruption's a problem, need to address that. But then there's this nightlife and day life and beauty and all this kind of stuff. So I went thinking that I was telling the story of Lebanon's evolution and growth and rebirth, the renaissance of Lebanon after 
the 15-year war mm. and it had been 20 years and we'd been rebuilt and downtown was beautiful and go to Bsharri, for instance, and it's magnificent. The freeway into Bsharri is unbelievable it's and, you gorgeous. know, and you see some places, you know, they've been amazingly rejuvenated and sure. it's time for us to tell the next story. But when I went there and I spent six weeks travelling around the country, I could see all this stuff, but when going there, not on a holiday, you go with a different eye and you go with a different purpose. So my purpose was to find out what the story was and ask the people and the answers that I found across the whole country from the very south to the very north and across to Bacar and every religion and every socioeconomic status, as I like to call it, the tefnis was gone. Mm. The facade was gone. The people were no longer pretending everything's fine and ahla balad or ahsan shab or, you know, we do like to do that. And uh, right. we are pretty good, but, you know, hang on, look at <laughs> look at the shit around you. Yeah. Uh, really. <laughs> Let's dig a little deeper. <laughs> you know, but this time they were actually being very quiet almost. There was a bit of a silence and it was more profound and they were more purposeful in their answers there was more reasoning and more depth to their answers it wasn't a superficial and I was listening and I could hear that there was pain and you know there were two million refugees we went out to the refugee camps there's a lot of pressure on the country there's a lot of pressure economically on the people there was corruption and we have to do this and get try and get this and yeah they can smile but you know talk to them quietly so this I came back to Australia with these answers and I listened and reviewed for three months the interviews and all I could hear really after reviewing everything was again another thing in my ear was the pink song what about us mm. I don't know if you remember it but it was yes. 2017 you know what about us? yeah and it was like this is what they're saying what about mm. us they were really saying it to their leaders but they weren't singing it they were saying it to me and they wanted to scream it to the leaders saying, we believed in you, we followed you, we heard you, we trusted you. And what about us? Like we're in a shocking state. But little did we know what was coming for us after 2017, 2018. It's interesting for you to say that, you know, it had a different purpose back in 2017 when you went to Lebanon. I guess it would have had a more positive outlook on Lebanon and a positive look into life in Lebanon and sort of exposing the beauty of Lebanon. Between your film in 1996 and filming now, fast forward 25 years, were people happier? Oh, great question. Wow. Definitely not. Mm. There was a weight. It was almost like before, even during the war, the stories were we lived. We lived. We were defiant. We got through. We had everything. Like you could buy stuff and, you know, there was war. But then after the war, there was hope in the rebuilding you know that first few years after the war because I was filming from 1993 94 95 so it was very early days but there was a hope of change mm. and so there was peace they were relieved but this in 2017 there was this weight you know they could go out they could get to nightclubs and I went to the nightclubs and you saw all of that 
I wasn't relaxed and confident. Mm. But the Lebanese love to live, as you know, and they will fight to the end to live, dance, sing, eat, and they're still doing it now, whatever they can do. But this one guy said to me in a meeting I had, I wasn't interviewing him, I was just meeting him, and he looked at me across the table and after talking and telling him, you know, what we were doing, he said, are you going to tell our true story? And Mm. it hit me right there. It was like, wow. I said, of course, of course I'm going to tell the true story. It was a very powerful moment and it made me very emotional that they want the truth to come out. The people inspired me through their words and their stories and their belief in what I was trying to do. And it was that, I hope, what was conveyed or is conveyed through the film. I had travelled to Lebanon in 2018. So it was around the time when you were filming the beginning of this documentary. And for me, the first observation that I made when I arrived to Lebanon was the irony of everything. I remember we were in the car coming from the airport on our way to Sharr. It was a day where there was a lot of traffic because in Lebanon, the traffic issue is also a whole situation as well. And all I could notice people in their cars, music up, they would have these beautiful songs, maybe from Feiruz or some singer who creates this imaginative uh, country of Lebanon, of the beauty of what it once was, the Paris of the Middle East. And yet you see the faces of these people, they're tired, they're devastated. And it was an observation that I made because I was quite interested to see what the culture was like in Lebanon. What is going on? Is it really true what they're saying in the news? So these types of observations and the conversations with people, you get to see the reality. And I think in this film, it does that. I think it accomplishes that by really scraping away all of the things that cover the truth. And unfortunately, at the core is corruption. Before I ask you the next question, I congratulate you on your courage for going out there, for interviewing these politicians, these very controversial politicians that we all know, we all know their names, we all know their faces. What was your preparation before going into those rooms and interviewing those politicians? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. You've got to be ready. You get one chance only. And some interviews, like with Jabron Basile, I had 20 minutes. But in the end, I pushed it to 40 minutes. What was the reaction um, by the media advisors and himself? When we pushed it, they were like, wrap it up, wrap it up. <laughs> I just, you know, oh, but, you know, and, you know, we kept him talking. So we got as much as we could out of there. Then his representative or whatever she calls herself said, we have to stop now, you know. But um, I think, as you saw, I got enough. I got enough. You got enough. Like in Sydney, the second interview I did, which comes first in the film, was in Sydney at the LDE in 2018, like seven months later. Because the first interview I did with him in his office was 2017. The second one was in 2018. I had scheduled and they had booked me in to do an interview with him at the LDE. And then they wasted time. And I don't think she wanted me to do an interview with him. Mm. And she's trying to avoid it. But I just kept going, following him around everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> everywhere, everywhere. And then the other like, okay, just three questions. Just three questions. Wow. The she generosity. Said, 
He said, all right, all right. I caught it like we were in front of the stage. We stopped, got the camera, right, let's go. Don't film me, just film him. We can do <laughs> And I asked him three questions. And the second one was a most powerful one when he said, you know, we have to get rid of this cartel that is ruining and controlling Lebanon. And I was like, oh, my God, did he really just say that? I was like, yes. And then, you know, juxtaposition of what we find out later and all the research. So I hadn't done all my research on him yet. I was like, I really was believing him. I thought he was telling me the truth. I go, this guy is our saviour. This guy's going to tell us the truth. This guy's it. And then you go back and do more research and you find out and you go, wow, wow, mm. what a shame. But, you know, same with Hariri. I had 30 minutes. And it took 18 months to get that interview, 18, 19 months to get that interview. I was like, okay, 30 minutes. I had to rearrange my questions. I had six pages of questions ready to go on each topic. But, you know, then I had to change them. I had to submit them so they knew what I was going to ask. So they had to review the questions before you interviewed. Just with Hariri and I think Muhammad Snaish, the Hezbollah Mm -hmm. minister, Mm -hmm. uh, they asked me to send them through. I don't think any of the others really asked me, but... Hariri, again, like with him, at the 30-minute mark, his media advisor said, time, five minutes left, and I said, I've got a few more questions if Prime Minister Hariri wouldn't mind. And he said, keep going. So we got another, I don't awesome. know, half an hour out of him. So. I love your fire to just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, this is my one chance. But, you know, this is it. Like, as a journalist, you get those opportunities and you've got to start as a journalist does. Like, even when you write a story, you got to punch it out in the first two, three paragraphs. Everything's got to be there and then you can elaborate. Same with your interview. Although with Hariri, I did sneak in a couple of questions about Hezbollah and terrorism and all that kind of stuff. Journalism uh, yeah. 101, everyone. <laughs> yeah, she got the shits, let me tell you, <laughs> afterwards. We did not approve these questions, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, I've got yeah, it on right, camera. Yeah, it's on camera. That's it. <laughs> Once it's on concern, camera. The concern's been signed, you know, <laughs> we're, we're in, you know, I'm so sorry. Oh, really? But, you know, he was happy to answer. What do I do? Like, so sorry, you know. But, um, you know, that's what you've got to do. You have to be wow. prepared. And having that knowledge that comes from doing your research and talking to people, checking different sources. You know, I had been in uh, Europe by then and interviewed a journalist and editor at The Economist about 10 years in the Middle East. He gave me some great insight. That's why you go around and you get different people's viewpoints because I could use some of the information I learned from him in those interviews with those politicians at the end. Mm. But research is critical, absolutely, because then you actually have the ear to actually hear what they're saying. You're not scared about just asking questions. You're actually in the conversation. That's right. You're in dialogue. And you can actually engage. And as a journalist, watch TV, watch these unprepared, ill-prepared, ill-researched journalists who they're just following their questions. They're the presented. Mm. They're, not, they're not journalists. They're scripted. Mm. So they're not actually listening. You're not actually like I'm watching. Them. Oh, my God, follow it up. Follow, mm. Did you just see like there's stuff that they give you that journalists today, because they're not really that journalistic, not trained and not prepared for those answers. So they just follow the script and hit these, but there's so much more juice. You've got to listen. Before the revolution movement started in Lebanon, was this documentary 
featuring the good bits of the politicians and the, the good things that they were saying. And then it was changed after the revolution occurred. Or was it always going to be the case that the statements that we see in the film today were always going to be included? They were always definitely going to be included, but in a definitely, and I love your questions, you're very smart. I learned from the best. I love it. I've done, uh, I don't know how many interviews, let me tell you, (laughs) hundreds. (laughs) Um, They were definitely in there, but you know how you can position them a bit softer? And I was going a bit softer because I honestly thought they were all trying to do the right thing. But when the revolution happened, and especially after the explosion and the negligence and the arrogance and the lack of sensitivity, mm-hmm. it was like, right, I'm done. I am done. Yes. Enough. And that's when I changed the title of the film, <laughs> Colour. What was it originally called? Yes, it was called The Dream is Everything. And that happened over a two-week process trying to work out what the line was. But that was back in 2018, Mm. you know, sitting there writing the script after my two trips. But, yeah, you're right. It changed and they changed. And I just actually exposed them a bit more. Mm. I tried to not give them away as much. I just said, righto, let's show you out for what you really are and show the whole bit of you talking here because I wanted to be nice but they don't deserve it Um, they deserve to let themselves speak for themselves and I really do hope to when I get five seconds to edit down their interviews cleanly and be able to release them online so you can watch the whole interview one by one because I'm sure you'd be fascinated and actually somebody wants me to do a book about that just make a multimedia sort of package and I think it would be fascinating because, you know, there's not a lot of interviews that have been done with these people recently. For sure. I mean, Jerome Basile has been interviewed a lot. Oh, Um, yes. So Wally Jim Blood, he refused to be interviewed for my film, but it's interesting because normally he loves to be interviewed, but, you know, we tried. It leads me on to my next question. What do we not see in the film? What are the things that were not included? Definitely, there's a lot that got left on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. And I made the film three times. I have three versions, you know, from the 2018 version. But each one had different angles too and I go into different areas. And like the first take of this, there was a lot more on the history of Lebanon, especially during the war in the 70s and, you know, when it was at Paris and the Middle East and the number of spy agencies that were in Beirut and the KGB had a base, the Red Army had a base, the CIA, Interpol, everyone had a base, even Carlos the Jackal had a base. Every IRA, um, you name it, everyone was in Beirut. It was the melting pot for terrorists because Lebanon was so liberal, well, Beirut was so open and liberal. Mossad had a base in Beirut, you know. Wow. Uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, everyone was there talking to each other, talking about each other. This was Lebanon's uniqueness. They would come to Beirut to do deals and do stuff. I wish I could write a film about it because that is the most fascinating thing about Lebanon. You know, people have done bits like the film Beirut that came out a few years ago. It sort of gave you a bit of an insight, but didn't really, but... 
there's so much, but nothing that should have, that really would have been powerful wasn't included. There's a lot that would have explained a lot more, but I had to keep it to a length and a level of understanding or complexity that was understandable. Were there any politicians left out? Yes, Ashraf Rife. Uh-huh. Oh, my God, there's so many, actually. Avadis Giranian, the former tourism minister. Misbah Ahdab, Sheikh Hassan Ya'oub, former oh. and current. I mean, Jmayil, the former president. I should have my list here with wow. all my no, interviews. <laughs> there's a lot. I had to focus on what was critical. And then in that section where we get into the politicians, it was all about corruption. And like Ashraf Fifi had some great dirt on Gibran Basile. And like he had pages and he did a press conference and he had documents and he submitted it to the courts and he did everything right about revealing. But, you know, what happened to that? The courts took it and buried it. Because as Sleiman Jaisati says in the film, who was the Minister of Justice, if I tell you that our courts are not, riddled with corruption, I'd be lying to you, to myself and to the world, to the people. (laughs) And like, well, hello. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a problem. Those institutions that are there to control and expose corruption and hold people accountable and execute justice were malfunctioning. They were not effective. How many interviews did you conduct? Over 200 interviews. I'm talking about from lots of people, average people, people in the diaspora, and then politicians and experts. And honestly, I counted them. It's over 200 interviews. That's incredible. Because I really, really tried to get the broadest view to ensure that I was impartial and really getting what the actual truth was Mm. as a collective, the collective voice of the people. And this was done between 2017 to 2021? Yes, that's right. Something that caught my attention in this film, I'm currently undertaking an honours course of journalism and my project is looking at the effective proximity between journalists and the events that they're reporting on. During the explosion that occurred in Lebanon, we saw journalists go out on the field and sort of break all protocols by being with the people, by showing these citizen journalism techniques of giving their own personal testimonies to the camera, hugging the people, crying with the people. And what really caught my attention in this documentary was that you implemented similar qualities of a citizen journalist, which I thought was beautiful because you put yourself in these groups and you put yourself among these different communities to really get the truth about their own country. Could you tell me more about what that feeling was like just being around people and using those journalism skills, not as a professional journalist, but rather just being engaged and participating in the story? Again, outstanding question, outstanding insight. You are excellent. And if you want a mentor, I'm here to mentor you. (laughs) Thank you, Daisy. (laughs) It's an honour. What always drove me and drives me is not just reporting. It's about awakening. And my job is to 
give something to the people watching or reading whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm making, something powerful that they are left with that impacts them. And, you know, Maya Angelou, her famous quote, people don't remember what you say or do, but they remember how you made them feel. That was one of the key drivers of this film for me because I knew after 2018 and the elections and 2019 and 2020, especially the explosion, I knew that I had a responsibility to move people. I had to move them to make any difference because if I produced a film that was intellectual only, I would educate with little change resulting. It would be informative, it would be educational, it'd be an account, a historical account, but I would not affect change for Lebanon. And my greatest responsibility, as I believe was ordained upon me by higher powers, was to deliver a message that would help Lebanon, help the Lebanese. And so I had to make a film and I had to tell the story in a way that broke that fourth wall almost in filmmaking when you're looking at the audience that's breaking the fourth wall. And whilst I didn't look down the barrel of the camera, I didn't put that stuff in. I wanted to, but I didn't need to. I was present in the story. I wanted you to feel everything so you could believe me. And I wanted to be transparent with whoever was watching the film to ensure that the trust was there. Because without trust, you know, you trusting me telling you this story, I would never be able to impact you to move you to want to do what you're doing right now, which is you were moved to, I've got to interview this woman. I want to expose the story even more, profile it. And like the audience reactions that we've had continuously after every screening was how do I get involved? How do I vote? How do I register? What do I do now? Especially from people who are third, fourth, fifth generation who have been detached from Lebanon, even the non-Lebanese going, oh, my God, how do I help you? What do I do? Like, this can't happen. This is ridiculous. These people can't be allowed to get away with this. What do you need from me? How do I register to help you with the movement? Do you need a donation? This is the thing that came across and is impacting people globally. And so when you see me, and I think that you're referring to a couple of moments in particular, the explosion, I wasn't there. I couldn't be there because COVID, but putting Macron in there showing him walking in the streets was very emotive and having Tom Fletcher talk about it in an emotional way he loves Lebanon and then showing those images on the Instagrams of those different cities supporting Lebanon in solidarity with Lebanon it broke my heart and I said people need to know how loved Lebanon is and the Lebanese need to know how loved they are and we are And that brings you into the emotion, you know, citizen journalism, and it takes it to another level. And then when I was on the streets in the Saura, going back, walking with them, being with them, going to Tripoli and taking you with me, I wanted you to feel it. And I wanted them to know, like I said, that I was with you, I'd support you. And you guys got to know that I'm just a representative of all of the diaspora. We all are with you. And that's what I wanted. And that lantern was so important for us in the diaspora to know that they have been burdened 
for so long and it's our turn to acknowledge, love and respect them and help them in mm. more ways than sending money. What was yeah. that feeling like being in the movement of the Saura? It was extraordinary, especially when I was walking through and there were so many young people. That was the night, like the students who did this demonstration. They walked from Ramlet al Baida back to Riyadh Salah and Mata Square and they had candles. It was peaceful. It was a peaceful march and, you know, just seeing them come in the thousands and there were candles everywhere and singing and it was wonderful. Being up in Tripoli, the heart of the revolution was the people of Tripoli and seeing them in that square day after day after day after day they were so determined and they were like really fired up and didn't matter what religion they were it's irrelevant they were together and that was a beautiful mm. symbolism of unity and oneness speaking of reaction to this film i watched yes. this film three weeks ago here in uh -huh. sydney and when i was watching it i guess i had two main emotions the first one during the film was fear. Fear in the sense that I said, oh my gosh, they actually went in. They went very in. They are putting the photos of the politicians. They're exposing corruption. They're putting it right here in front of us. I am concerned if there is somebody in this cinema room who is a supporter of these political parties wow. and how they're going to react. To the movie's credit, it really has such an incredible impact. Are there any security concerns with this film premiering in Lebanon? And have there been any backlash to this film? There definitely has been backlash. It hasn't been very in your face for me, but it's been cyber attacks and hacking my Facebook and trying to hack the website of the film. Like they were very strategic attack. So I've been brought down twice on Facebook, my main wow. Facebook page, which has 63,000 followers two weeks before the launch in Australia in December. And then two weeks before we re-premiered here in Australia in March, it was bizarre. I still haven't got my Facebook page wow. name back yet. Uh, Do you have an idea of who has hacked these accounts? Well, you know, I'm not going to. I did mm. mention it in December because I was interviewed by MTV because there was a lot of stuff going on in December. A lot of people who were promoting me and the film and telling people to get out and go see the film were cyberbullied and threatened. People were called up and said, why are you promoting one person in Melbourne said to me, a lady in her late 20s, early 30s, she said, look, you know, I've been attacked for promoting you, but I'm strong, I can handle it. I just think there's a lot of people who are being bullied who are supporting you and, you know, what do you do about it? And another woman stood up and said, I got called and told not to support it and not to promote it. And in Sydney there was some strange, let me tell you, really weird stuff that happened, really, really weird stuff. I got called three times by members of a certain party mm. and told to retract some of the stuff I said because I got interviewed on MTV and it went a bit viral right. just before Christmas where speaking about the attack on me and it went viral around the world. People were like, what the hell? And it was because I was singling out two Christian parties because that's where the attacks were coming from. Mm. 
and they got angry with me and I said, well, I'm telling the truth. I'm not going to bullshit. You can't absolve Hezbollah and say that they're innocent. I said, I didn't say they were innocent. I didn't absolve anyone. I just said, but I'm just talking about these attacks on us. So that happened in Australia. If that happened in Australia, what are we expecting in Lebanon? Yeah. Look, uh, we are expecting some problems from some people. And I have been told countless times, Ellie, countless times by family, by friends, by officials, even ambassadors. We had a screening in Lebanon in October. It was a very private screening for 25 ambassadors. The Australian ambassador, Rebecca Grimley, hosted. And there was about 65 people, mostly embassy staff from 25 embassies and the ambassadors. And after the screening, about four or five ambassadors came up to me and said, do you have security? I said, do I need security? Yes, you do. Like we might know the stuff that you're sharing, but no one's ever portrayed it the way you've portrayed it. No one's ever joined the dots and no one's ever done it in English and no one's ever taken it around the world. These men are dangerous men. Please be careful. You need security. And that's from ambassadors. And I was in Lebanon. It was still undercover because it wasn't revealed and it was little private screenings. And then I kept traveling at festivals and screenings around the world and DC, New York, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then Sydney and everywhere I went, people were saying, you can't go back to Lebanon. You can't go back to Lebanon. And I'm going, I have to go back to Lebanon. Mm. I have to release it in Lebanon. And this one interview in January, this woman, she said, I need to tell you this. She was Lebanese, but she lives outside Lebanon. She's doing it for a magazine that's going to come out in the next week, actually. Wow. She said, you can't go back to Lebanon. And that spooked me. That one spooked me. And so late January, I'm going, oh, my God, I can't go back to Lebanon. And, like, I was really in a moment of crisis. And then I said, I've got to find out. Is my name down? Is this, is that? Like, So we put the feelers out in Lebanon and went to the Burri party, the Amal. We had someone who's an advisor, check it out, someone we couldn't trust. Went to the Australian embassy, went to the American embassy, went to people in the army, like, you know, asked those questions. I said, look, there's nothing official on your name. So I sort of got some peace about it and I thought, well, I'm going to go. And so I made the decision to go. But I then had some briefings with people in security in Australia who work with a detail, the prime minister and political people. And they said, look, the threat's not going to come from a party. They're not going to give an order. You're not issuing a coup or anything, but you have to be careful of a lone wolf. Mm. Like you just said, might get the shits that you're discrediting or humiliating their leader. So that's what you've got to be careful of. The reason behind all of this is to get to the solution. There is no sense of solution unless we talk about what the issue is at hand. And I think your film does show those two sides. Although one of those emotions I had was the fear, the other emotion that I had was hope. And the reason I say hope is because you have a beautiful call of action towards the end of the film, which is to encourage people to go out and vote. 
And we understand that the system in Lebanon is broken, but this is one vehicle towards change. And I really loved that the film promoted this idea of voting. Now, there are some of us who have the motivation to vote from the Lebanese community, but the difficult question is who to vote for. I know that everyone's choice to vote, but I think we are all anti-corruption. Would you be able to shed some light on what direction we should be going towards? Look, a lot of people ask this because it is missing and I would have loved to be able to reveal who to vote for, but they were still forming their parties and they were still forming their groups when we were finishing this film and it really only happened on the 15th of March the independent candidates actually announced and revealed who they are. Mm. So unfortunately, I couldn't include it. I did allude to the fact that there are independents and they're forming. But this is why I ask at the end of the film, like we put a card up, join the movement for change. And I talk about it in Q&As, like stay informed, we'll give you more information because The film had to end at some point and I couldn't just keep waiting and it had to get out there. But there are candidates and they are revealed now. And on April 4th, there will be a culling of the 1,034 candidates that have announced for the 128 seats. So you've almost got 10 times the number of candidates, but that's okay. They should be reduced by April 4th because the final lists are due then. Mm. So it's not only a week away. So all I say, like there are definitely independent groups that are out there now and I can't reel them all off for you right now, but we will be revealing them on my socials and in our newsletter that we're going to be sharing Mm. and we've asked people to sign up for. So on my socials and on the website, the enough.movie website, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is on the Free and Fair Lebanon page, because we believe and I'm pushing a Free and Fair Lebanon, and that's I mentioned it in the film, because Free and Fair are values that are actually universal and every country, every government in the world aspires that who believe in democracy mm-hmm. aspire to the values of Free and Fair. So they're not just two words. They're actually a hallowed symbol that we aspire to as democratic countries and nations. But if anyone has any doubt or is confused, all I say to them is vote for anyone other than the existing parties and you can reel them off. You know who they are. You know, if you see any faces or names you've heard before, do not vote for them. That's a good start. Literally, like you've heard the names. As we see in the film, one of the interviewees says, These are the same people who are controlling us for the last 40 years and these Lebanese are still voting for them, which is like bleep, right? She (laughs) said it, you know, I love her, Darina Al-Jundi. like, yeah, like, so do not vote for anyone that you've heard their name before Mm -hmm. Um, or a party whose name you've heard before. And I can reel them off that. We know who they are, but please follow me at Daisy Gideon. All my socials are the same because we will be showing you who they are. And when I go to Lebanon, I hopefully will be talking to a lot of them and I'll be putting interviews up, little bites and stuff. 
you'll be able to see that. And that's what I hope to do while I'm in Lebanon and spend my time giving you more and more information. Brilliant. And I should say, I loved the graphics in the film. It was quite effective how you put the text and the graphics for some very important quotes and important facts and figures. For example, we saw the figures of how many people voted in the last election. 49% of the registered voters in Lebanon voted and only 30% of the youth voted. The youth alone can change this. It leads me on to my final question. April 9, a global watch party will be launching and it will be premiering in Lebanon. Could you tell me more about this event and what it will include? This is the most important thing about everything I've been doing because there's so many people around the world who want to watch the film, but they're texting us or emailing us from Amsterdam, from Syracuse in New York, from everywhere, like literally. When is it coming? When's it coming? Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. And it's not a blockbuster that can be released around the world at the same time and, like, I can't afford to do it. That Mm. takes money or it takes a big backing because people believe and they'll back you with millions and millions of dollars. So I can't get around the world and do that really quickly. But we know the more people that see this film, the more people will be like you, encouraged to get out there and vote or want change or do something or encourage their relatives if they can't register now to get ready for next time, encourage relatives in Lebanon to vote differently, at least talk to them, at least tell them to go and vote. You know, that's the most important first step. And what we're trying to do with this Global Watch Party is be in Lebanon for the premiere where I've booked every cinema that's open in Lebanon, one screen in every cinema so that Lebanese across Lebanon for one night can unite and come and see the film for free, open to the public, come and see it and then join with the Lebanese diaspora around the world. Wherever you might be, you can sign on and register. If you go to the website enough.movie/gwp, register to watch it online. And what I'm trying to do is unite but give access to everyone to watch in this one occasion and be awakened, educated, enlightened and empowered. Mm-hmm. And For the diaspora who are watching it at their homes around the world, they'll also get to beam in live via satellite after they watch the film to the live Q&A in Beirut where I'm going to be. You know, Paul Najjar, the the father, and Tracy, I think, will be with us, the mother and father who lost Alexandra Najjar, the two-year-old, in the explosion, Mm -hmm. with Dr. Carmen Giha and with Albert Kostanian, the very highly respected presenter on LBC doing the Q&A and getting the feedback from the people and the Lebanese around the world can send their questions in and we'll be able to engage in that live Q&A with everyone around the world for one night and show solidarity again. And to me, that's so powerful. And I really want as many people as possible to get on board and watch it and, and learn. Like we need to be on the same page. And only education can put us on the same page. Only true facts and figures and trust can put us on the same page. That's what this Global Watch Party is about. And hopefully people will see that there's a way that they can help someone in Lebanon go and see the movie and keep the doors open because, you know, I've got people helping me, but we can't sponsor everyone to go and see the film forever. And so we're asking Lebanese across the world to sort of sponsor someone to go and see the movie a simple donation. There's a GoFundMe link as well and help us keep the cinema doors open and allow as many 
especially the impoverished Lebanese, mm. bring buses in the Bacar, in the south, in the north. There's people in Tripoli that don't even earn a dollar a month. It's shocking. So we really need to help oh. our families and friends in Lebanon now, mm. our people, be enlightened. I talked about that idea of sadness and I asked you how it's changed mm. over 25 years. This year, World Happiness Report that was released recently listed Lebanon as the world's second saddest country in the world just before Afghanistan. Honestly. And it's just a stab to the heart when we yeah. read something like that. Lebanon, a country that we all know and love and all the beauty that we remember and we know to hear about this global watch party and with the elections coming, I really hope that we all, as you said, come together in solidarity and unite and pull Lebanon out of this state of sadness and depression and ugliness that it's in towards a better future. I mean, such a very poignant place to finish the interview, you know. I mean, we were the country of the joie de vivre, the joy for life. Nothing brought us down. But, you know, these facts now that we're the second last country in the the barometer of happiness is unfathomable. And this is why they don't want to vote. They're depressed. They're feeling despondent. They're feeling hopeless and helpless. And this is why I'm pushing for people to help allow the Lebanese to go and see the film because I promise you when they see that film as you did, they will feel empowered, won't they? Absolutely. They will feel, especially when that guy, Tony Isa, is sitting on the staircase and he says about his vote, and my vote could be the vote that makes the difference. And he's 100% that, correct. That is so powerful. I can't tell you how many people after the film have come up to me and said that one quote from that guy just did it for me. If we all believed in our one vote, our voice, and we need every single person in Lebanon who's despondent and depressed to just get out there and vote, and we need to help them do that. No amount of talking is going to get them, but maybe education through the film will. From your mouth to God's ears, I hope. Because it was actually from God's mouth to my ears Mm. that I'm delivering this message. I promise you, Jesus, Mary, and these amazing, you know, voices, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Father Teresa, I had them in front of me on my wall when I was Mm. writing this script and I kept saying, what is it you want me to tell? What is the message you want me to deliver? Come, let me be the vessel. Because there were so many ways to tell this story. So many ways. Honestly, it was like, help me. You know, it just came slowly. But here it is. And I'm so happy that I listened to the voice in my heart. Because there were voices from people telling me, don't do it that way. Do it the intellectual way. And I said, no. If I do that, without this, I will not achieve my purpose and my purpose is divine intent to move people because only when you move them will they rise to action daisy thank you so much for your time for your generosity for your courage for your strength it really opens our hearts as lebanese people to see such a warrior 
in a country that needs help. And someone like you who is making a contribution as a Lebanese Australian person is truly honourable and I support you all the way and I hope that we all see the success of Lebanon in all its glory and beauty. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so grateful that you've given me the platform to keep telling my story. And I encourage everyone to watch the film and join us in this movement for change. Check out the Global Watch Party at enough.movie forward slash GWP. The link will be on my social media pages at Libnani with Ellie. See you in the next episode.